Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. It's been 11 years now since a landmark review of the Australian education system was chaired by one of the nation's best regarded businessmen and philanthropist, David Gonski. The report identified several highly concerning trends in the educational outcomes of Australian students. Not only did it find that student performance had declined at all levels over the previous decade, but there was also a concerning proportion of Australia's lowest performing students who were found not to be meeting minimum standards. Perhaps most importantly for our story, the review identified an unacceptable link between low levels of achievement and educational disadvantage, particularly among students from low socioeconomic and Indigenous backgrounds. The end report contained a big list of recommendations. One in particular stands out, its recommendation 41. And more than a decade later, it's resonating more loudly than ever. David Gonski remembers that recommendation very well. Recommendation 41 was a very important one. It involved the establishment of Schools Plus. I just take my hat off to the people who came along, took the idea and made it work. Schools Plus was established after what became known as the Gonski Review. Its goal is to close the education gap in Australia that is caused by disadvantage. How it does that is through philanthropic funding. It seeks to empower teachers and school leaders with funding to help create sustainable change for their students. But why philanthropy? Isn't education a government responsibility? Shouldn't the state be looking after its own schools? What role does philanthropy play in this setting? My point would be that, yes, governments are tasked to provide public schools, but there's a lot outside uh, but associated with going to school that needs to be funded. And that's the area I strongly believe that philanthropy can help. I also think that philanthropy can help in studies that might improve things within schools, in trying specifically to test ideas. You know, when you're running a very big school system, you can't really dwell on one school. Philanthropy can do that. It's a view that Schools Plus CEO Rosemary Conn shares, but she also offers a slightly different perspective. I feel like philanthropy can play a really targeted role and it can provide sometimes the impetus, the space and time that teachers need to be able to think more strategically about how to tackle some of the complex issues within schools. So what might work for the average school has to be thought of differently in some of these disadvantaged contexts. Teachers need time and space to do that, and I think philanthropy can provide that. Also, I feel like it can provide something that's really targeted because of the complexity of the work because if a child starts school behind they're going to need a lot of extra support to help ensure that they get back on track and I think it's quite difficult sometimes for government to support individual schools in that way rather than having a blanket policy in place. The scale of the problem of disadvantage is not difficult to assess but it has different dimensions. 
across the country, there are 4,600 disadvantaged schools. And the way that we think about disadvantage partly is socioeconomic, as you might expect, but also looking at other aspects that contribute to a child not always getting the optimal start in life. For example, coming from a family where English isn't the first language, potentially from an indigenous background, coming from a rural area or children that have additional needs and require that extra support at school. All of those factors together combine to creating disadvantage, essentially. Schools Plus approach is to find ways to support those schools dealing with a disadvantage based on the premise that the schools know their community best and will often have a plan or project in mind that could potentially make a difference. One of our guiding philosophies is that the school leaders know and the school communities know their own context and what works best for their children in that school. And so once a year we open up for any school that falls below that threshold of advantage to put in an application to us for a project that is going to result in an improvement in student outcomes for their children. And that can be a primary school or a high school that can be based across the country, government, Catholic or independent. And so we get a vast array of projects coming through the door. So it could be anything from working with families and their children at the very start of their time at school and making sure they have a great start. Or it could be focusing on lifting their literacy and numeracy We're seeing a lot of work coming through around schools wanting to focus on well-being and then that transition from school into employment or into higher education. And the types of needs in each community differ and the solutions differ. Now, into this already challenging environment came a pandemic that in a range of ways added new burdens to schools, students and families. Schools Plus saw the consequence. 650 schools approached them in the past few months in search of funding and wraparound support. Rosemary acknowledges that it's just not possible to fund every project, much as she'd like to. But they have been able to support many other projects that have emerged from the COVID-19 years. We've had quite a few schools that are looking to set up wellbeing hubs so that when children arrive at school at the beginning of the day, there is a safe space for them to come into and that their needs are met not just from an academic perspective but that if they require additional emotional and social support that they're having access to that they might then have access to their counsellor at school or be referred to specific allied health services that they might need and so schools have set up these sort of safe spaces or some of some schools call them nurturing there are well-being hubs that are being set up And there are quite a lot of programs as well. So schools are looking to put in place both professional learning for the teachers so the teachers can be the first port of call for addressing some of these social and emotional needs of their children, but also programs for the kids as well to help the kids understand how to build their resilience and how to develop some of those social emotional skills to interact with each other again because some of them have been at home and they haven't had that experience of interacting with each other particularly kids actually from primary school that haven't 
haven't been in primary school in real life. And so they're coming for the first time into school environments and they haven't developed that ability to play well together, for example, and all the things that you'd expect at that age. Central to the school's plus offering is its Commonwealth Bank Teaching Awards, which are designed to recognise and celebrate outstanding teaching while creating a network of teachers who can share ideas and develop collaborations. One of this year's recipients is Shane Wilson, the principal of a tiny school in remote Marble Bar in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Marble Bar is situated 1,500 kilometres north of Perth and 200 kilometres southeast of Port Hedland, which is one of the nation's biggest ports for exporting iron ore around the world, especially to Asia. But there's also a real cultural heritage. So as we know, there are hundreds of Aboriginal languages around our country. And in the East Pilbara Marble Bar, the first language of that area, which goes back thousands and thousands of years it's such an ancient culture is Ngamal. That's the first language and the culture of the people that the Ngamal community wants to integrate into our school. For those of us in the eastern states, Marble Bar is more famous for its hot weather, a stretch of 160 days straight over 37.7 degrees back in the 1920s, a Christmas day where the mercury climbed 48 degrees. You start to sweat just thinking about it. Perhaps in that kind of climate, in that kind of country, there's no surprise that Shane's school is small. 30 students for kindergarten to year 12. One class spans kinder to year 5, and the senior class consists of year 6 to year 12. And there are unique requirements that go along with it. 90% of our students are Aboriginal and speak English as a second or third language. So teachers who come into the school not only need to have the cultural awareness and sensitivity, but also an ability to teach English as an additional language dialect students. So it's not easy. It definitely requires a lot of training and a special type of person to add value to a small community. And this is why we need our best teachers in our small schools, because it's not easy teaching. It's challenging. There are a whole range of issues impacting on the school, including transiency attributed to cultural obligations. There could be sorry business, which goes for weeks and weeks. There's the need to be culturally responsive to cultural differences between Caucasian Australians, such as myself, and our First Nations people. So it's interesting and rewarding. Shane says that his first step once he arrived at Marble Bar five and a half years ago was to ask his school council of local elders what they wanted him to do at the school. And importantly, what did they want from the school that he could support them to achieve? The answer was a resounding desire to integrate the first languages of the area with Namal culture. But to an outsider, that poses some unique challenges. Namal is a critically endangered Indigenous language. We have a moral obligation as a school community to do whatever we can to capture the language before it goes. It is the first language of Marble Bar and I think it would be a very terrible thing for it to completely go. So the power of 21st century technology through virtual reality, virtual worlds, drone aviation is enabling a way of creating a space for storing stories and language and activities. Now, we don't have a number of teachers, so what we do is we work two-way. We have elders 
in the community. We've got two or three that we work closely with that work alongside the staff through our Aboriginal Islander Education Officer, Deborah Todd, and they assist us with the pronunciation and recording of NAMAL stories. There is a pro bono payment made to our elders for their cultural intellect and organisations such as Australian Schools Plus and philanthropists are supporting us with that. It's not cheap because we need to reward and recognise the, the cultural knowledge of our First Nations people and support them because it is a very poor community. I'm told by elders that I shouldn't try to speak Namal because if I mispronounce a word, it could be viewed as being culturally offensive. So I very much rely on the elders' wisdom to work with us in speaking Namal and then translating that to English. What Shane has been able to do with the school has been to create an opportunity for his students to share their local world with a global audience. It's built on a focus on STEM, science, technology, engineering and mathematics pathways that brings the local community, the CSIRO's two-way science integrated program, together with the existing national curriculum to create what is a virtual gallery. And that's a combination of virtual reality and drone technology that preserves and showcases the local languages and represents them and shares them around the world. The benefit for local students is that the approach helps create a STEM pathway that has potential for training and employment with the local industries. Shane hears regularly from the mining industry that girls with STEM skills are invaluable. There are jobs for them, especially if they can pilot a drone. In January, Shane applied for the Schools Plus Commonwealth Bank Teaching Awards. He's one of 12 successful applicants. He receives $45,000, 25,000 of that towards expanding his students' virtual world at Marble Bar, and the rest to help fund a trip to Singapore to study some innovative teaching approaches and partake in a range of masterclasses. In addition, he's now started a dialogue with his other award recipients, testing out ideas and sharing strategies. For us at Marble Bar, we're really looking to expand our Marble Bar virtual world as a place of storing, preserving and showcasing the Ngamu language, which is by far the biggest need and interest of the school community, especially with Ngamu being critically endangered. Rosemary Kahn suspects the genesis of the teaching awards once again goes back to David Gonski. And the Teaching Awards concept started a few years ago from a group that we set up called the Pioneers in Philanthropy that David Gonski heads. And um, David was very passionate about ensuring that teachers are awarded and recognised. And it was a belief that we shared. And so the Teaching Awards started about six years ago. And I feel like it's just becoming more and more important as a way of recognising outstanding people within a profession that really should be celebrated more and also shining a spotlight on what really great teaching looks like because sometimes that isn't really shared. The school gate is closed and those teachers work within that school but we're trying to make sure that schools and teachers can develop networks and start to collaborate through having the teaching awards and the fellowship program that's part of that. And David's association with the idea was connected perhaps to the inspiration he received during his own education from an influential teacher called John Duffy. 
I had a teacher in mathematics at the school, and I'd lived a life thinking I was quite good at maths and then uh, got a, one of these feelings that I really didn't know what I was talking about in mathematics. I was quite scared and clearly wasn't doing that well in year 10. And this man came along who, by the way, was a keen sportsman and I was a total non-sport, a keen person in all the areas I probably wasn't. I was a a nerd. And uh, he took me under his wing, turned me around, and mathematics became my thing. John Duffy made a difference. He helped give David self-belief. I remember he used to stand near my desk and say, come on, you can push even further. You can get to next week's work. And he believed in me. I once asked him, how come he believed in me? He wasn't sure. I just think he believed in his students. It could well have been I was not unique at all, but I felt unique that I had his attention and his incredible drive. David later became chairman of his school and decided to honour John Duffy. He asked his former mentor what he would like, and John said a tree planted in the school grounds would be enough. So I arranged a few people to pay for said tree, including myself, and we planted it. You know that when he stood there and I announced this tree, which was not a great tree, by the way, but anyway, he burst into tears. He was inconsolable. At 84, no one had actually said to him, you done good. There was also another significant moment that fed into David's passion for rectifying disadvantage, one that helped him realise the transformative power of educational opportunity. I don't know whether you've had a moment or moments in your life where you just suddenly see something that's been there for your whole life but have never noticed it. When I was busy reading all the stuff in the early times of the Gonski Review, I suddenly had one of these light globe moments where I realized that my father was a low socioeconomic person. And I've had a very privileged life because he was a brain surgeon. And when you trace back, which I did during that time, how did a man from a low socioeconomic background, English not his first language, end up a brain surgeon? And the answer was scholarships. The answer was that some people saw this boy as a bright boy, which he was, and helped him through, right through to Edinburgh and beyond, coming to Australia with these degrees, saving lives, but also keeping his children in the manner that obviously we were very lucky to be in. And so you can see how you can change lives with education, and you can see how those from a low socioeconomic situation could miss out. His father missed out. But he didn't. There is an argument that says in the post-COVID world, education in Australia has only become more important. For thousands of families who went through homeschooling, there's been moments of insight into what schools provide and what teachers deliver every day. Rosemary is now seeing a shift with more people interested in supporting education. And it started with Recommendation 41. I feel things pick up now and that we're having new conversations with organisations that we haven't had a a relationship with before, and that's been really encouraging. Partly, I think it's because education through COVID has had a real spotlight put on it. Every parent in the country became a 
teacher, co-teacher in their own living room. And so I think their appreciation of teachers certainly <laughs> increased. And it became pretty clear that education was was a critical part of our society. And I think that's really helped to shine a spotlight on what has always been an issue. But for us, COVID has exacerbated the issue. And now we're trying to match that issue with support from philanthropy. This has been the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson, and thanks for listening.